The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you don't uh, if we all know one another, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it is good to be with you. It's good for us to gather, uh, to worship, to sing praise to our God, and uh, to come to his word. And uh, we have returned uh, to the portion of his word that we were in in the fall. You remember way back in the fall, sometime in September, we began a new ser- sermon series in the book of Romans, but we took a break during Advent, then we took a break during January, and now we've returned to it. So last week we were in the end of chapter 6, and this morning we'll be looking at Romans chapter 7. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 7. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and you can also follow along on the screens as the passage will be projected in just a moment. But if you were with us last week, then you remember that what the Apostle Paul told us at the end of Romans 6 is that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. That Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over us. That we belong in body and soul, in heart and mind, in all of our ways and all of our days. We belong not to ourselves, but to Christ. Well, that theme of death and life is continuing into Romans 7. The Apostle Paul now turns his attention away from us being under sin, and instead what he says is we are no no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law. What does that mean? What does this new life in Christ, what does this new life in the Spirit, what does it look like in regards to the law? Well, Paul's going to tell us in Romans 7, so follow along. We are going to read the entire passage. Paul begins by saying, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. 
So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have called us to new life in the spirit, a new way of the spirit. And we pray that you would teach us what that means this morning. That you would lead us and guide us. That you would help us. For Father, we need the work of your spirit so that we would see you clearly. And we would love you and walk with you. So meet with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I imagine that many of you uh, have seen the movie, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, or maybe you haven't seen the movie, maybe you read the novella in which it's based on uh, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, and if you've seen the movie or you've read the novella, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that you should go out and do it, so there's a little disclaimer. It's not for everyone. It's definitely not a movie for everyone. But if you've seen it, then you know that the movie centers around a particular character named Andy Dufresne. And Andy has been wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife. And so he has been sent to prison. He's been sent to Shawshank Prison. And while he's there, Andy meets a man. He befriends this man named Red. And Red has been at Shawshank since his teenage years. As a 17 or 18-year-old, he committed murder, and he has been sentenced to a life term at Shawshank. And so he has spent his entire adult life behind bars. He has spent decades sleeping and eating and working and under the authority of guards behind brick walls and in a cell. He's lived his whole life that way, until he receives parole, that is. And on the day's release, there's this beautiful scene. Red is no longer donning the, the gray uniform of a prisoner, but now he's in a brown suit and a white shirt. He has a tie and a hat on his head, and he approaches the gate that leads to the outside world, and there are four guards standing there. And they look at him, and they open the gate, and Red stops, and he looks at them almost like he's expecting that they might slam the gate closed, like this was all a big joke, that he'll be sent back to his cell. But instead, 
one of the guards simply nods at him and invites him to leave. And Rad gets this beautiful smile on his face, and he takes a few steps through the gate into freedom. He turns and he looks up into the sky, and as he does so, we hear the gate closing behind him. Those walls, those bars, those guards that once kept him enclosed, imprisoned in his cell, they are now behind him. What's before him is new life. A new life, new clothes, an apartment, a job. What's before him is a new life. He's free. And that's what the message of Romans has been for the last couple of weeks. That we are free. We heard in Romans chapter 6 that we have been freed from the imprisonment of sin. We have been set free. And we hear it now in Romans 7 that we are free from the condemnation of the law. We have been set free from it. We hear it in verse 6, right? Paul says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, we have this new life, this freedom that God has granted us. We no longer live under the condemnation of the law. That's what the first five verses of our passage were setting us up to hear, right? Paul gives the illustration of a married marriage couple, right? A married couple in which the law binds them together as long as they are alive, that they are bound to one another. But, but when one dies, then the one who still lives is free from that binding. They're now free to go and be remarried. They're free to live a single life. They are free from what bound them together. And so too are we. We've been released from the law. Now, anticipating what might go through our minds in hearing this, that we've been released from the law of of what the law did in our lives before we, we had this freedom, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He asks, Does this mean that the law is sinful? So if we've been freed from it, if we've been set free, like we've been freed from sin itself, does this mean that the law is sin? And Paul answers it by no means. No, the law is not something we jettison. It's not something we put away. It's not something that we we disregard. So what does it mean then? What work does the law have in our lives if we are no longer living under it? For those who belong to Jesus, who have freedom from sin in this new life, this new freedom, how does the law function? Well, friends, in this new life that we have, the law exposes our sin. That's what Paul tells us in verses 7 through 13, and specifically in verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So you see what Paul's saying, how the law functions. The law helps us to see ourselves clearly like a mirror. So think about Paul's life. Think about what we know about Paul's life before he became a Christian. Right, we hear about in Philippians, he gives this little autobiographical section in which he tells us that at one point he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee. Regarding righteousness under the law, 
He was blameless. Anyone, if anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. That when he looked in the mirror, what he saw was a life without blemish and without spot. Until he looked into the mirror of the law. You see, the law isn't like every other kind of mirror that that shows the external. The law actually shows us the internal. The law exposes our heart. When he looked into the mirror of the law, what Paul saw was the sin beneath the surface. You shall not covet. That's what he says, right? That's what the law revealed to him, his coveting, that tenth commandment. That from the outside, everything looked good. A Pharisee, a righteous man, one without blemish or spot. But when he examined his heart, when he looked into the law, what he saw was a commandment breaker, not a commandment keeper. Francis Schaeffer once said that before you break all the other commandments, you break the tenth. It makes sense, doesn't it? Before you steal... You covet that thing. Before you commit adultery, you covet that person. And the dangerous thing about coveting is that coveting is hidden away in our hearts and our minds. Right? That we don't actually reveal that we have been coveting until there is a sin that manifests itself that is birthed from that coveting. That it's hidden away in our hearts and our minds. In fact, even right now, right? Even right now, y'all could be sitting there coveting. You could. You could be thinking about uh, what your neighbor has and what you want. You could be thinking about what the person sitting beside you or behind you or in front of you, what, what they have and what you want, and none of us would know. Right? I'm looking out, and your faces look like they always do. <laughs> That's the danger of coveting is that it's hidden away until we look into the mirror of the law. And the law shows us, not the external, but the law shows us the depths of our hearts. It exposes the sin beneath the surface. That's what it does. This new life in the Spirit, we have our sin exposed. And so as our sin is exposed, we repent of it, we turn from it, we cling to Christ. Now, as those who have this new life, as those who have had our sin exposed, as those who repent of our sin and know that we are no longer under sin or its condemnation, it would be easy for us to think that that means then that our life is going to be lived completely apart from sin. That was the old life, right? I actually had someone, I've shared this with a few of you before, I had someone a few years ago, a number of years ago, before I was a pastor, tell me that he had gone over five years without sinning. That the last time he sinned was over five years ago. Now, in the moment, his wife and his children weren't there, so I couldn't see the look on their faces when he made this claim. But what he was getting at, though, was that kind of mentality that if you are in Christ, if the old is gone and the new has come, if you're living this new life in the Spirit, then certainly that means that you will be freed from sin completely. 
and that the Christian life will be one of holiness only. But is that what the new life is marked by? A sinlessness? Well, of course not. And you all know that because you laughed. The thought of that is unimaginable to us in our own experience. No, actually, in this life, even after our sin is exposed and we repent and we are living this new way in the Spirit, the struggle continues. Our struggle continues. Let's return to Red, our friend from Shawshank Redemption. He's been released from prison. He has new freedom. He has new clothes and apartment and job. He can come and go as he pleases. His life is no longer dictated by guards or prison bars. Well, after a number of days and weeks and months, Red starts to feel his freedom as being too much. It's too hard for him to bear. And we hear him say, all I do is think of ways to break my parole. So maybe they'd send me back. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he spent decades longing to be able to breathe free air. He spent decades wanting to be freed from his cell. He spent decades wanting to be free from that prison. And when he gets it, when he receives it, all he wants to do is return to his bondage, to return to his prison. I mean, it's unthinkable, isn't it? That the freedom is too much? It is unthinkable to our ears. And it's the very thing that we do every day. Because y'all, when we return to our sin, that is what we are doing. We are returning to our cell and to our prison. We are returning to the slavery that Christ has freed us from. We have been freed from the power of sin, and yet we keep returning to it. We've been freed from the prison of sin, and we go back to that cell. So why? I mean, we know we shouldn't. So why do we continue to go back? Why do we continue to fight against sin? Well, Paul tells us because the struggle continues. We see it in verses 15 and following. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Did you hear that? I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep doing. We hear that struggle, don't we? We hear how it's continuing in Paul's life. Now here it'd be good for me to acknowledge that there is debate amongst theologians and commentators as to what state of Paul's life he's referring to here. You see, there are some who think that what Paul is talking about is his old self who was under sin. So, so when he talks about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do, that, that he's referring back to his days before he was a Christian. There are some who think that. Uh, I think that's wrong. 
I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about. I think Paul's talking about his current life, his present struggle, and so does Calvin and Luther. So, you know, I'm in good company. (laughs) But I think Paul is speaking about our continued life as believers. And the reason, there's a few. The verbs in this section are in the present tense. They're in the now. Also, we're told Paul's struggling, right? He's fighting against sin. But before he was a Christian, there would have been no struggle. We've just simply been giving in. And finally, his posture towards the law changes. We see in verse 22, the law brings delight, but before it was death. As Calvin put it, Paul in his own person describes the weakness of the faithful. He's describing struggle. And we know that struggle, don't we? We know that weakness. It's real. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Doesn't that sound like our lives? It sounds like mine. It sounds like mine. The Bible is clear that that though we are not under sin's authority any longer, the fight against sin is not over. That it continues In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You hear what he's saying? There is a battle being waged in our hearts. There is a battle in us right now between the flesh and the spirit of God. And though now we are in Christ and we have new life and we can say no to sin and yes to godliness, the battle continues. The struggle continues because as Luther said, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. And this struggle will continue against sin until Jesus returns. Until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. This struggle will continue until that day. Now listen, in in saying that, it's not excusing sin. It's not kind of throwing our hands up and going, well, if if that's the case, then, then why even struggle? Just give in, you know, just sin and sin greatly. No, Paul already took that up before, right? By no means. No, it's, it's not excusing sin or giving it a pass. It's recognizing that in this new life, there is no perfection. That Romans has been telling us that it's not perfection that is part of this new life, but struggle. Struggle against sin and struggle to pursue holiness. And I have to tell you, friends, that this passage, it actually encourages me to some degree. Because what I see in Paul is someone who shows me that my experience, my struggles are not unique. It actually gives me a little bit of encouragement to continue to fight, to continue to struggle. But at the same time, it also makes me a little weary too. Because it's telling us that that the struggle will continue. (laughs) That in this life, there is no stopping it. And so the weariness and and the burden of it, it it could actually lead us to a place of despairing. We hear Paul kind of starting to move in that direction in verses 23 through 24. He says, I see in my members 
another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my, mem- in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Calvin believed that the body of death was referring to the whole mass of sin, sin in all its aspects and consequences. And we can hear Paul, right? He, he looks at his sin, he looks at his struggle, and he says, wretched man that I am. And we feel that, don't we? When we fall victim to temptation, when we give in to sin again, when we repent, but then we go back to that sin a day or two later, right? We feel that wretched man that I am. Where will we turn? What do we do when we give in, when we struggle, when we fall short? Who will come to our aid? A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is telling us we need not despair. Because not only do we struggle, and the struggle continues, but more importantly, we have a Savior who is faithful. Because when Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? What does he say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He doesn't have to say anything more. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver us? Who will rescue us? Who is our help? It is Christ. And only Christ. He is the one who delivers us. You see, friends, when our sin has been exposed and our struggle continues, we turn again and again back to Jesus. We return to him again and again. We don't just rely upon him for our justification. We don't just trust in him when we first believed. Right? I mean, it'd be easy for us to think that. We first believed in Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I've got it from here. You put the boots on, but I'm going to pull them up, right? I'm going to pull myself up by my own boots. It's all, right? That's how we sometimes live. We needed Jesus for our initial salvation, but for the rest of our lives, it's us. But what Paul is telling us is that what we need is Jesus day by day, moment by moment, month by month, year by year, what we are in need of is the one who can rescue us and we can rely on in the midst of the continued struggle. That we rely on Jesus because he is our faithful savior today when our sin is exposed. And tomorrow when we feel weak in our struggle, we return to Christ. We repent of our sins and we claim his work on our behalf and we long for that day when he will return and sin will be no more. But until he does, we rely on him because he is faithful. It's because Jesus has set us free from the prison of our sin that we don't return to the walls and to the bars again. Instead, we walk in this new way of the Spirit repenting of our sins, struggling against it, and relying on our Savior. He is the faithful one. Let us look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your Son, our Lord Jesus, who is faithful, who is with us in the midst of our struggle and battle, who is the one who has freed us and delivered us. And so I pray that today and all of our days we would look to him. We would rely upon him. 
that when temptation raises its head, that we would turn from it by trusting in Christ. That when, when, we, when we fall victim to it, that we would repent and cling to the cross again. That we would hold fast to you, Jesus our Lord. And we pray all this in your name. And God's people said together, Amen.